0: Well, I am excited to get back into this study of Colossians today, you know, with the holidays and this leadership series that we did in the fall on Nehemiah. It's actually been three months since I have been in Colossians. And if you're new to CCC, this is kind of regular fare for us. We go through the Bible verse by verse. Uh, This book has made a strong case for the preeminence of Christ, and that means that, you know, he's above all, he's authoritative, he's sovereign over the affairs of of humankind, and how that affects us as a church and as a people. Now, remember, Paul was dealing with a specific false teaching that took away from the person and work of Christ. And we find ourselves at the end of chapter 3, where it proposes some uh, specific and practical applications around the family. We could ask this question. How does being raised and hidden in Christ impact us as parents, in our marriage, as children growing up in the family, or as an employee or employer? Now, I would suggest that our faith is not some compartmentalized spiritual experience that is disconnected from real life. It's not that at all. Uh, Six months before he was assassinated, Martin Luther King spoke to some junior high students at a school in Philadelphia. He said this, if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. I love that. That is the spirit of the person who does all to the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. And that's the spirit of this passage that we're going to look at here in Colossians chapter 3, starting with verse 18. Let's all stand. Wives, submit to your husbands. You know we're going to have some fun today. As is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. "'Fathers, do not provoke your children "'lest they become discouraged. "'Bondservants, obey in everything "'those who are your earthly masters, "'not by way of eye service as people pleasers, "'but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. "'Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord "'and not for men, knowing that from the Lord "'you will receive the inheritance as your reward. "'You are serving the Lord Christ.'" For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so, Father, we again acknowledge that we are at a holy moment, a holy transaction, where your word is spoken, and our hearts are to receive and to obey and to inculcate these things into our lives. Lord, Make us doers of your word, not merely hearers. Transform, change attitudes, change lives that Christ could truly be Lord of every area. For it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. When the first Apple store opened in 2001, there was no iPod, no iPhone. And 90% of people in the U.S. were using dial-up internet. Remember that awful noise? All right. For every 100 people who visited the store, one would buy something. Most people who walked through the glass doors in 2001 did not own a single Apple product. And the team at Apple were totally comfortable with that because they knew that they had got it right, that success would come off the back of becoming meaningful to people, their products. They were selling more than just electronics. Now, the success took a few years, as you know, because people didn't understand the stores or the the genius bars that they had at first, But the Apple Store eventually became, and I quote, the most successful retail concept of all time, according to Fast Company Magazine. And as Rob Johnson, the VP of retail at Apple, said, people really love our stores because we are more than a store. We are a place to belong. Now, this sense of belonging also attracted a lot of money. So that today, Apple has over $200 billion, with a B, cash on hand. If you were to stack that up in $1 bills, that would go halfway around the world. That's quite a wad to hold in your pocket. Now, I'm sure that there might be big corporate haters here and even Apple haters, but here's one thing that we have to agree upon. That Apple understood that their existence represented something greater than electronic devices, and people obviously bought into that. When it comes to the glory of God being known around the world, I would suggest to you that God has devised a plan that's far more effective than Apple. It was devised long before Steve Jobs was born, and that plan started at creation And it is this, that every social sphere that God has designed is to say something about his character. Whether it is a picture of the unity of the Godhead or the authority or lordship of God, God has designed these social spheres to reflect something about himself. For instance, All things belong to God. So our labor, our jobs, and I would add this, even our giving is an expression of stewardship of his ownership. All laws are to be based upon the moral law of God so that all government is to be a reflection of his sovereignty. The church is to demonstrate the love of God to a watching world. Families are to reflect the triune Godhead in community and relationship. You say, well, that's the ideal, but it sure doesn't look like that in the world because humans have forgotten God. Instead of Psalm 19 being manifest, whereby we declare the glory of God, people worship the creation rather than the creator. And once God is denied, listen, the social structures that he has ordained begin to crumble. Moral laws are rejected, labor is demeaned, government is in disarray, no authority is trusted. The, the, the church looks more like an institution of power than an organism of love. And not only is marriage a nuisance, but so is the very identity of each individual human and their sexuality is a commodity to be bought and sold and exchanged. And the modern mind says that humans choose these things. That God is not there, and even if he is, he is impotent. The cry is that man is sovereign, and his sovereignty is expressed over the banner of tolerance. For it is intolerance that every proclivity of man is beyond questioning. And it is in this that man becomes nothing more than a beast. And the very image of God quality that brings man dignity is denied. The psalmist said it this way, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. Even the fallen angels are lumped in when it says in 2 Peter 2.12, but these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, I'm just born this way, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant and also be destroyed in their destruction. It is in this rebellion that the pride of man rejects the social structures of God and all of the components of those structures. And we see a more detailed description of this in 2 Timothy 3 where it says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Now I ask you this, how do you suppose that a culture that is described like that is going to take to loving and honoring and submitting to one another? in all of these social structures. Vivian Gornick, fellow at the Radcliffe Institute of Harvard, writes, being a housewife is an illegitimate profession. The choice to serve and be protected and plan toward being a family maker is a choice that shouldn't exist, and the heart of radical feminism is to change that. Betty Frieden in 1963 told women, leave home and go to work. Twenty years later, Frieden wrote another book called The Second Stage, and in it she says, feminism has failed, and I urge you working women to leave work and go home. (laughs) In a book entitled The Death of the Family, David Cooper suggests doing away with the family completely because it is the primary conditioning device for a Western imperialistic worldview. Worldview. And Kate Millett wrote a book called Sexual Politics. In it, she writes this, that the family must go because it oppresses and enslaves women. Listen, under such cultural conditioning, it is no surprise that marriage and all of its components are diminished. So when Paul calls a wife to submit in Colossians 3.18, There's a lot of things I want us to recognize. First is the cultural milieu that we find this, but it's also this that we need to understand. This is not exclusive to women or to wives. Some of you maybe grew up in a Christian subculture. It was like, that's all that women are to do. For instance, in the family context in Ephesians 5, Paul calls all people to submit to one another. The idea is that we are to yield, to listen, in submitting to one another. We're to consider one another. So I'd say this, husbands are also to consider and submit to their wives. You say, what? Well, let me ask you this. Now, Paul instructs the husbands to love their wives, right? Is that unique to men? Should wives not love their husbands? Well, that's absolutely ridiculous, These are not meant as exclusive claims for each sex. The identity of women is not encapsulated in submission. Submission is simply one of the ways that we can all contribute to a marriage to make it healthy. We could say it this way. Submission is the responsibility of every believer in every social sphere. Every one of us are to submit in government, in family, uh, in church, in our jobs. We contribute, we give up our own personal pleasure for the sake of the good of the many. Even the CEO of his company submits and that he puts aside personal pleasure and does what is good for the many that's submission. We are to serve one another and do whatever it takes for the health of our jobs, the government, the church. In fact, the same Greek word that's used here in Colossians is used in 11 other relationships, including people submitting to government, uh, everyone submitting to God, and believers submitting to one another in the church. And so we define submission as the joyful service to others. And we do this out of reverence towards Christ because we understand Christ is an authority over us Our hearts have been been trained to respond to his authority, and so we respond to others in submitting to them. And we'll get into uh, next week how we are to train the will of our children and their spirit to respond immediately to their parents in authority, to train them to listen to God. Again, because we recognize Christ is sovereign over all authority, and we have to learn to live in humble Submission to him. Submission is not a statement that one person is more valuable than another. It's not about one person having to say and lording it over another. It's not about one person keeping their mouth shut while another gets their way. It's not about one person not having the ability to express their opinion. So, what does it mean? Well, specifically for wives, when they in this instance, uh, instance submit to their husbands, you respect him. You believe in him. You trust him. You listen to him. You yield to him when necessary. And, husbands, how are you to submit to your wife? You do it by loving her. You love her and, and submit to her by giving yourself up and attending to her needs above your own and her desires. You are to love as Christ loved the church, as he gave himself up for the church. And our passage says, you are to submit. Here to one another as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, Christ modeled this as a child, perfectly submitting to his parents, and also in everything, submitting to the Father. And we could say this that Christ is the fuel for our submission. That in my relationship with Him, as I learn more about God, I learn to rely upon the indwelling Christ to be of benefit to all these other social spheres that I'm a part of. So how does that work in marriage? Well, look at it this way. And I know that there's a rub. And, and, and I, I think most of it has been because we create this caricature of, of submission. And I, and I think the church has been guilty of that in some cases, and certainly the world has. But women, let me, let me just reason with you this way. What if you were married to a man who was genuinely crazy about you? You had no doubt that your happiness was his priority. He listens when you talk. He honors you in public. He values you above any other earthly possession. He's not afraid to make a decision, uh, a decision but he listens to you values your opinion. He leads, he's responsible, but he listens. He's not argumentative. You have no doubt that he would give up himself for you. Now, would a woman have trouble responding to a man like that? (laughs) Of course not. There's no fear. There's safety. There's no reason to resist. And I might add this. Conversely, anyone who has your best interest in mind is in fact submitting to you. The man is submitting to the woman because he's chosen to use his resources for your benefit. Basically saying, okay, you first. What would you like? That is a man who loves his wife. Just like in any other social structure though, When others are not holding up there into the bargain, it's difficult, is it not? Not only difficult for wives, but it's difficult in any other social structure when people are not fair. And so Paul adds this reminder for the men. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Please, no elbows, all right? Now listen, we have to take note how revolutionary these words were over 2,000 years ago because women were treated like property with basically no respect. Cato, a Roman writer, said this, if you are to catch your wife in an act of infidelity, kill her without a trial. But if she catches you, she would not venture to touch you with her finger. She has no right. She has no right. Wow. Now, even though today we could say that much has been done to address women's rights and opportunities have increased for women, there's still a strong patriarchal bias. There's still uh, a viewpoint in many marriages of seeing women as nothing more than instruments of physical pleasure. But listen, agape love, which is the kind of love that Paul is, is, is talking about here, it's not encapsulated in just physical pleasure. It's much more than that. It's the man who sacrifices. Love here in Colossians is the kind where the man willingly gives himself up, puts his wife's pleasures before his own. Lewis B. Smead said this, Love is fair when it builds up both the lover and the beloved, when it increases both and diminishes neither, when it brings them close and lets them be separate, when it nourishes both and leaves neither wanting. Love me well, but love me fair, or I would rather that you love me not at all. Paul adds this note. Do not be harsh with them. The word literally means to make bitter. It's the kind of love, or excuse me, the kind of um, relationship that is marked by resentment or cynicism. I mean, there are ways, men, in which we, you know, we create the soil where bitterness can prosper. I'm not saying it's automatic for every woman, but we create a culture where it's very easy for a woman to be bitter. See, how's that happen? Well, you can start with this. Demand that she be submissive. That'd be be a good way to do it, all right? Or pull out the God card, all right, to try to get her to agree with you on some decision that you're wanting to make. Use her only for sex. Take no time to talk or pray or engage her with what concerns her. Don't value her opinion. Ignore her when a big decision has to be made. That's a sure way that you will find success when it comes to creating resentment. See, I know about these things because I read it in a book. No. I know about these things because I've been guilty, angry, harsh in marriage. And what I see in the soil when that happens is something that is fueling those negative emotions in my heart. It might be insecurity. I might perceive some loss of control or a threat that perhaps power is going to be sacrificed if I reveal what is really going on in my fears. Instead of entering into relationship, valuing the other person. And when you don't do that, what's it lead to? Well, the temptation is to flee or fight, which keeps those negative heart issues under wraps right? And really what love is calling us to do is making the other person an equal in terms of relationship and communication. And so I'd suggest this, that harshness is just the oil light going off, that there's something going on under the hood. And we as men must address that. And it happens too in the body of Christ. I mean, if you look at the body of Christ, these issues become also critical. Differences arise, right? Uh, There are uh, irritations that occur, misunderstandings. It's it's in any social sphere, but I'm just using the the church, uh, church as an example. This is usually what happens. We flee or fight, all right? We then find our circle of friends, whether it's within the church or maybe even another church, and reaffirm us as we talk about them. It's us versus them. And instead of unity, we look for conformity uniformity. Everybody agrees with me. That's not unity. Real unity is when, you know, we can can disagree about the secondary issues, and yet there's still love and respect and value of the relationship. It is taking these issues and not letting them come between us. That's what real love does. But see, what happens when we flee or fight? What happens then is that We refuse to continue in relationship, and we we perpetuate the self-protection. That's not community. That's not love. That's just our stuff seeping out. There's an interesting passage in Luke 17 where Jesus said this, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Notice this. Pay attention to yourselves. And then he talks about dealing with a situation, forgiving somebody. These are the hardest components in any relationship. But he says, pay attention to yourself and do these things. Could it be that when we refuse, listen, when we refuse to work through the differences, our offenses, that stuff that usually separates us, when we don't value or continue to invest in others, you know what that is? We fail to pay attention to ourselves. In other words, we perpetuate our unhealthiness when we flee or fight. We perpetuate our unhealthiness. Our relationships reveal far more about ourselves than it does about the other person. Now, I say this to all husbands who have control issues, uh, who are constantly barking at the kids, barking at his wife, constantly critical of the members of his family in Christ. You have to address those things. And if you don't, your bull crap just continues. And that poisons everything. And you're the one responsible. You can blame mommy. You can blame daddy. You can blame your job. You can blame your church. You can blame Obama. You can blame God. You can blame all these entities, but it's still on you because it's what's in your heart. And we've got to deal with that as men. And when we do, in the power of Christ, and he begins to transform and shine light, not to make us perfect, just to be authentic and real. This is what's going on. We enter into community. I'm not saying it fixes everything and it's all hunky-dory. I'm not painting that picture at all. I'm talking about authentic community. When we do that, we have better marriages. We have healthier families. You know what I've seen? My kids, my wife, They're the most forgiving bunch of people I've ever met. And I give them plenty of opportunity to forgive. They got that down. See, the husband's love is is modeled and fueled by what? It's the love of Christ. That's where I get my strength. Christ doesn't love us based upon what we've done. No, it says, but God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This kind of love does not wait around until it gets the feeling. No, it understands what it's to do, whether it feels it or not. Here's a way to look at it, men. You, as the husband, okay, you are the change agent If you want to look at yourself as the leader, I'm a leader. All right, great. That means you are to initiate the change. Just like if you were to manage in a company, something had to be done, something had to be confronted, you would initiate the change, all right? So you are the change agent to change the cycle of the silent treatments. You change the angry tirades. You change your put-downs. Agape love is the only kind of love that loves for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, not just when it's easy. And listen, it's that kind of marriage that is going to give glory to God of the transformation of the gospel in your life where you reflect the unity in the Godhead and the unity then in your marriage. Not that it's perfect, but you are in loving communication, community with those in your family, understanding the grace of God, being the impetus for that grace to be expressed to all members. That is what the husband does. Not perfection. Humility, honesty, vulnerability, grace. That's the power of God. That's what's going to testify to your children that this is something worth emulating. Let's pray.